For decades, he's been celebrated as a founding father of a Canterbury ski area. The people who loved him knew him as a fun Austrian ski expert. But another side of Willie Huber has been exposed. An indoctrinated member of the Waffen SS, one of the most feared and brutal criminal organisations in the 20th century. He was certainly aware of the acts of war crime and genocide and holocaust going on and he chose to stay quiet and he also lied to come to New Zealand. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, how the full story of the Nazi who built Mount Hutt was uncovered and why the journalists involved felt they needed to drag up the past of a man who once in New Zealand gave so much to the community. Yes, I saw Hitler when I was nine years old. Could you imagine? And he was smiling, look at us, put his arm up as he always did. Willie Huber came to New Zealand on a two-year visa to help build houses in the post-war boom. He stayed, married and had a family. He died last August at the age of 96. Today I talked to two journalists who worked on the months-long North and South expose, Naomi Arnold and Andy MacDonald. But first, here's the editor, Rachel Morris. It's been basically months in the making for us, but then also for Andy, who is the historian who sort of focused on the, you know, the military history part of the piece. I really only became aware of Mr Huber's story uh, at the point at which he'd passed on and there was some media coverage about that, and I found the old TVNZ documentary. When Nazi Germany declared war, it wasn't long before 17-year-old Willie volunteered for military service. He joined the Waffen-SS. And realised with certainty that there was an untold story here and that some of the things that were being said by Mr Huber and reported were factually just incorrect. One of our publishers, Constantine Richter, who is German but lives in New Zealand, someone here in New Zealand had sort of said, you know, have you ever thought about this guy, Willie Huber, who very celebrated for his history in the New Zealand, you know, Alpine world? No, I honestly knew if we could develop a ski field that would have been one of the better ski fields here in New Zealand. It was opened in 1973 the year after I was up here. And they sort of thought you might be interested in the fact that there was this fairly recent revelation about, you know, his war history being maybe more serious than what people had originally thought. There was no grey area in that. It was obvious to me that that was the case. For instance, Mr Huber said that he was in Russia at a certain period of time, and yet if that was so, he would have had a very specific medal for that service, and he didn't have it. Then there was the photograph of him wearing the um, the tanker's uniform. And if you watched the documentary on TV, you could see a lot more of the regalia that he was wearing that said Das Reich, which is one of the more notorious Waffen-SS uniforms. But it was, it was obvious, 100% obvious, that he was in the Waffen-SS. Everything about it was just screamed that out. And then there were other things that he, he sort of said that would strain credulity, such as he was unaware of the events of the Holocaust, war crimes and that sort of thing while on the Russian front and in one of the most indoctrinated Nazi units around. In the immediate aftermath of Huber's death, there were sort of all these articles about mostly focusing on the achievements of his life and then a real backlash from people saying, hey, what about the fact that 
he very recently, near you know, not long before he died, admitted that he had been a member of the Waffen SS, which is and had volunteered for it rather than being conscripted. They called up that they need machine gunner. So I put my hand up. Which is a really different story from what he had told people for most of his life, which was just, you know, he was like a young guy. He got swept up in the war, which is something that I think a lot of New Zealanders would understand or probably have relatives who that was also their story in mm. the Second World War. I thought to myself, goodness me, I think if I become a machine gunner, I can go in the first row. And that's exactly what's happened. This was all in the 2017 Sunday programme, which we can't watch now because TVNZ has taken it down. Yeah, that's correct. And then what was your next step? It was pretty obvious to me at the get-go. There was no listening to every single word. I could just see what the holes were straight away. And then it was a matter of making some inquiries. So the very first place is to get Mr Huber's military service file from Germany that required going through a formal process. And that filled in some of the blanks and put a a skeleton of dates for his enlistment and promotions. And then a source in Germany was able to furnish other documents to me. Uh, And then another author in Germany provided some information as well on the unit. So it was really sort of bringing all of that information together in one place uh, and then also putting in Official Information Act requests to relevant New Zealand government departments. MB actually saw it as a matter of public interest Mm. and responded in a quicker than usual time. When you were trying to dig into the information from Germany, how difficult was that to go through official sources? Europe's privacy laws are are very strong by comparison with New Zealand. I'm talking specifically about Germany here. There's all sorts of political sensitivities as well surrounding that period of time. So getting access to files of potentially living people is is difficult. Um, So the case needed to be made that this was in the public interest. And that was accepted. Konstantin uh, Richter had one of his contacts in Germany go and view the documents in the Bundesarchive and um, send scans of those back. And having been a a long-term journalist and a military historian, I'm not without one or two contacts in that space, so I was able to um, secure some other documents relating to promotions, assignments and medals that Mr Huber had received during his war service. And they kind of confirmed, you know, what I'd suspected. So some of the press reporting portrayed Mr Huber as this Nazi SS, always an officer, and kind of went overboard on his story when, in fact, he was a very small cog in a massive machine. And, you know, that much was obvious from looking at the documentary on Sunday. Um, and the paperwork confirmed that, so we were able to add levels of fact to the story and very quickly deal with solid facts. But it was the New Zealand immigration revelations that gave the team the... Smoking gun of having lied to the immigration authorities in the 1950s. And and, and in effect, every time he left the country and returned, he seems to have reinforced that lie as, as, as well. At the time that he came in, you had to, among many other things sign a declaration that you had never been part of any criminal organisations and he said that he hadn't. I think that's important. I mean, some of the flack that has come from various quarters, you know, social media 
has been that he was a young man caught up in events beyond his control. Well, sure, you know, maybe that is so. But equally, he was a volunteer. He did serve in the wartime Waffen SS, and I'm very comfortable that we've given him a fair hearing and drawn um, reasonable conclusions about how much he did know. We have the record, you know, in his own handwriting of him attesting to that. And so not much longer before the legal tribunal at Nuremberg had officially declared the Waffen SS, which Hoover had volunteered for, to be specifically a criminal organisation. And even further than that, they made the point of saying that the level of violence and brutality within the organisation was so widespread and so endemic that they didn't just regard, say, somebody who was the leader of a division to have been a member of a criminal organisation, but basically they considered that there was no way that any member of it could not have been aware of what the Waffen-SS was doing at the time. There's very clear definitions on what membership of a criminal organisation is. It's not something I've magicked up overnight to make the story. They've been around for the better part of seven decades. All I've done is look at those and uh, apply his, yeah. his story in relation to those. The interesting thing about your story here is the detail. For example, you refer to a diary of a Waffen-SS soldier mm-hmm. uh, that's, that was held in a private collection. Mm-hmm. How did you get hold of that diary? Old school journalism, actually. I remember remember when I was a cadet reporter, we had this um, um, senior reporter from the ODT come into my journalism class, which was Aoraki and Timaru, and um, he's sort of a fairly gruff character. He sort of said, well, the telephone's going to be your, um, your best friend when you're a journalist. You know, you're going to be on it a fair chunk of every day, running down leads and standing up stories and talking to people and... You know, technology's shifted a bit since then. Um, so, of course, we've got Skype and email and all that kind of carry on, um, far more accessible than back then. So, really, it was just a matter of reaching out to a network of contacts that um, that I had and sort of asking around, uh, do you have anything um, on this particular guy or this particular unit? But actually, it came by a connection from a, a source of mine, so it was a little bit removed, but mm. none, nonetheless uh, it was just that, that simple uh, running down a lead, running down questions, old school journalism mm. I suppose you'd say. And the detail about Hoover being stabbed by a Russian soldier and he still felt his injury 70 years later, was that that kind of information also about old school journalism? Yeah, well actually there, there's a really interesting aspect to that in that Naomi tracked down, amazingly I might add uh, another Waffen SS soldier alive and well in New Zealand right now. I didn't know he was when I found him. And he was the one who managed to get that out of him. Now I have to be a bit careful with how I phrase this because I'm not sure if he's actually told his family that. So we changed his name because I found him through asking around and somebody said that their relative had been in the German army they always say German army <laughs> instead of, you know, His story is somewhat different to Mr Huber's in that he was a very late war conscript, had never served in Russia and therefore had not seen the, the, the crimes and things there or in France and, and Belgium um, and um, also spoke out very strongly against the, 
the Holocaust and, and so forth. So I said, great, you know, we'd love to talk to him about knowing Willie in those early days. He said that his relation had worked on the Tatahi Bay houses with Willie. And Mr Hoover had told him some details of his personal war experience, presumably in the context of two old soldiers sitting around and talking. The man, he, I don't think he had ever revealed before uh, that he was uh, in the Vafanesis, but Andy, with his knowledge of movements and um, military history, was sort of, you know, asked question after question and was able to sort of say, wait a minute, you can't have been there if you're in that unit, and then the man eventually... Uh, confessed. Is that right, Andy? Have I got that yeah, right? that, that's pretty much a fair assessment of it, yeah. It was really a fluke, really, but, um, you know, if I had interviewed him, I, I don't have the knowledge to that would have enabled me to get past his 80 years of covering it up. For us, what was equally as interesting was why did people in New Zealand sort of regard him the way they did? And even when they found out that perhaps he hadn't been fully truthful, why weren't people sort of more inclined to ask questions or perhaps like revisit how they talked about his legacy? That was how we brought in Naomi to sort of have them team up where Andy's also a journalist as well as a historian, but he would focus mostly on the historical part, whereas Naomi would really try and get to the bottom of, I guess, speaking to all sorts of people who had run into him over the years, from friends to people who were actually quite alarmed by the way he spoke in private about Hitler or about the Nazi regime even quite late in life. And to have the story like really look at not just what did Huber really do, but what does his story also say about us as New Zealanders. Mm. No one knew he'd been Rafan SS, so they knew he'd been in the war. The story goes into how he sometimes showed people his medals and talked about it occasionally. But the people who loved him knew him as a, a fun Austrian ski expert, you know, alpine expert, and the war didn't really come into any of their conversations. So it kind of came out with the Sunday show. But again, that didn't shake their view of him because they loved him. I think we owe it to him to never forget him and to carry on his legacy and, and produce a, uh, you know, a world-class mountain that, that people want to come and ski on. He'd be up at Mount Hutt every day if he was capable of going up there. <laughs> Willie was Willie, people kept saying to me when I was talking to them. He's, he's our friend. Yeah, they had various levels of disdain for the media and the backlash against that revelation. You say that locals were angry, this is in Methvin, and called it a hit job on him. Pretty much everyone I talked to used the word hit job in terms of the media coverage that came after his death. So there was an obituary, I think it was the Otago Daily Times and possibly the press, that mentioned his contribution to Mount Hart and then questioned this war legacy. And that sparked a lot of angry letters to, I think, both of those publications and... That this was August 2020 when he passed away, so that kind of kicked off a fresh round of anger against Mount Hutt naming aspects of their ski field after him. And then there was that petition that was launched, and mm. that gathered 7,500 signatures in about seven months. On the one hand, you had people saying, you know, it's outrageous. It's one of our most famous ski fields. There's a lot of history there, and there is, you know a plaque on there and a ski trail named after somebody who turns out to be a committed Nazi or something like that. And then on the other hand, you had people saying, well, look, whatever he may have done as a young man, like lots of people were in that situation. He came to New Zealand. He was a really 
beloved member of the community, good family man, and in the end, that's more important. And I think what was missing from that conversation was that on either side, nobody knew what actually had he done. What did he do for Mount Hutt? When he came to New Zealand, he he worked in Tahi Bay. He went down to Mount Cook, and I think he was working on building one of the huts there, and he met Edna, his wife, and they settled in Christchurch. And he just quickly became um, an integral part of the alpine and skiing and mountaineering community. So when the time came to, for the Methven Lions group, they wanted to look at establishing a ski field on Mount Hutt. And they engaged three people to fly up in a helicopter and take a look at the terrain. And Willie was one of those people because he obviously was very well known as a alpine expert by then. So they, they took a look at this terrain in this bowl and said, this is going to be a great place for a ski field. And then he volunteered to spend a winter up there. I think that was 1972. And he spent about five months in a, a hut that was uh, that he designed and that was built. And he was at about 2,000 metres altitude. And he was really committed to his to his task. So he lived there alone. Uh, it was freezing cold. The, the kerosene heater was always on the blink. And he took daily measurements of all sorts of different weather conditions. At one point, he actually saved the lives of three boys who were bringing him a radio. So anyway, with Willie's measurements, they were able to ascertain that Mount Hutt would be a really great place for a ski field. And he was then the manager of the mountain or ski field manager for I think the best part of a decade. He retired from that, but just kept up an active involvement with the community. Good to be up the mountain. Very good. Hello, boys. You enjoy your skiing? Yes. You had some skiing already this morning? I have to hang on to somebody. I'm a little bit dotly. I'm a little old man. Ninety-four. When I'm up there on the mountain, look out there, and I think I'm very fortunate. Actually, I'm just very, very lucky. When you went out to talk to people, friends of his and people who knew him, were they hostile or were they willing to talk, or was it a mixture? No, they were lovely, really. Yeah, went to uh, Methven and went into the New Zealand Alpine Agricultural Centre to look at the memorial hut that they've built there, which is a replica of Herbis Hut up on the mountain. Again, it was just happenstance. While I was in there, I ran into Viv Barrett, and he <laughs> took me under his wing to give me the the right side of the story. Yeah, he told me how upset he was about the media coverage, and he showed me all around Herbis Hut, and then he he took me around people. He set up interviews for me. Yeah, he he offered me to stay the night. He took me out to his farm, and um, we fed out the animals together. He was just a, a he's a he is a lovely man. And then he introduced me to. Butch and Joe Stern, who who have a property on the Rakai Gorge, Mount Hutt Lodge, where Willie had his 90th birthday party. And Joe has been a friend of Willie's for about at least 30 plus years. Joe's a sort of a crack skier and ski instructor. And Butch uh, happens to be Jewish. He was American born. And his parents were the only ones of his family to escape uh, the concentration camp so he, he lost all of his family and they welcomed me and they gave me a drink Viv was there too and they regaled me at length about Willie and what a great guy he was and you know how the media um, this is again this hit job idea came up you know I, I mentioned what what we'd found out about him but it just didn't matter to them that they, they loved Willie he was their friend and that was as far as it went so it was quite straightforward to to put down on paper who Willie had been to those friends and to the community the one regret I have is that the family didn't want to have anything to do with the story, and I tried quite a few times to have them engage in some way, but obviously that, that's their choice, and um, this is 
been very hard for them and, and it, it does hurt as a reporter to know that you are going to be hurting the family mm. but um yeah that they weren't keen to take that the email responses that you've had are so varied aren't they i mean i'm just reading one here from dr philip temple from dunedin uh who says that um he says, in revealing a dead man's evil deeds in a major cover story, you have loaded shame on his innocent family. That's cruel. Yeah, the spectrum of the responses has been, I think, a sign that this was something that really did need to be written about and that there was a lot here that hadn't been fully acknowledged or explored. That one, I think, is really interesting because the author is himself a biographer. You know, I think when you're writing about many people, their family would not necessarily like to have all of those details in Mm. the public arena. But I think for us, there was just obviously so much that had not been uncovered about Huber's life, including, you know, the fact that he had lied on his immigration application in order to get into New Zealand. From all this work you've done and, you know, all the people that you've spoken to, what are your impressions now of Willie? I mean, I think he was a charming guy who lived and breathed his community and I think he did a lot for the Methven community and and for Mount Hutt and I'm not trying to marginalise that or take his achievements away. However, there is a a whole other um, part of his life that is there that cannot be treated as a roundabout and we can't just move on just quite that simply. And that's principally because it's about his being an indoctrinated member of the Waffen SS, one of the um, most feared and brutal criminal organisations in the 20th century. He probably certainly wasn't a concentration camp guard, didn't have anything to do with the, the, the major... Um, mobile killing operations in 1941 but he was certainly aware of the acts of war crime and genocide and holocaust going on from 1942 onwards and he chose to stay quiet on what he'd seen what he knew about it and therefore he literally meets the definition for having belonged to a criminal organization and he also lied to come to New Zealand and I might understand the reasons for that, wanting to get away from war-torn Europe, wanting to start a new life. But the way to move forward is not to begin it with a quilt of lies and then maintain them for six or seven decades to your community and your close friends. And there needs to be some acknowledgement of that. So does the good outweigh the bad? Um, In in my personal judgment at this point, in Willie Huber's case, no, no, it doesn't. And I think um, that's sad because he did offer so much to the community here and he did did do so much. I still haven't quite made up my mind what to think, I think, but um, after all of that. But I think what, you know, would have helped him and him, I mean, personally, he may not have been in a position to do this, which, I mean, it's always a bit tricky saying, well, you should have done X, Y, Z in, in your life. But if he had sort of opened up um, about it and said he regretted it, I think, that would have gone a long way to sort of helping people feel less outraged about what happened, but he, he did just stay silent. Since the controversy gained momentum, the Mount Hutt ski field has renamed the Huber ski run. 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Alexia Russell produced today's episode. Rangi Poak engineered it. And thanks to Andy McDonald, Naomi Arnold and Rachel Morris. Kakite kite anō.